Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello. Everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. I don't know if you've gone anywhere. We didn't go anywhere. We sat here for a week. We did. Just waiting. I've got a big layer of dust all over me. <laughs> well, we didn't do anything. Have we done anything to import? No. No, so let's look at an email. I watched, I watched Big Hero 6. Oh, yeah, you watched Big Hero 6. I did I did, did you enjoy Big Hero 6? Yeah, it was alright. Good, excellent. Uh, an excellent review. Yeah. And uh, an excellent poster quote that I'm sure will be splattered across posters and buzzes mm-hmm. across the land. Stan Lee was in it. Stan Lee mm-hmm. was in it. Oh, it's a Marvel film. So yeah, it was. It would be in it. Wouldn't it? Oh, we watched Birdman. We did. Which was uh, either yeah. a portrait of a bunch of whiny, self-obsessed narcissists or... A mediation on one's self-worth and descent into depression. Yeah. Depending on which side of the pretentious fence you want to state your claim. Yeah. Was that alright, wasn't it? It was mm-hmm. quite enjoyable. It was very well acted. Yeah. Some funny dialogue in it. Well made as well. Ed Norton is exceptional in it. Ed Norton playing Ed Norton. Ed Norton playing a variation yeah. of yeah. Ed Norton. Emma Stone's in it playing a... a strung out Gwen Stacy. Yeah. Essentially. It's no coincidence... That it's comic book actors. Is it not? No. Is that no coincidence? Well, no what coincidence. comic book movie was uh, Naomi Watts in? Oh, she was in Time Girl! Yeah. Alright, there you go. There we go, yeah. <laughs> Alright. Keaton was obviously Birdman. Yeah, which they mentioned. It's which been they 19- mentioned quite a few he's times. He's played Birdman since 1992. Which is true, he hasn't. And Ed Norton was, of course, the Hulk from which he got fired. Yeah. Or quit. <laughs> Could be either. <laughs> <laughs> With Mike, it's both. It's both. Yeah, it was. It was. It was too long, and I like the ending though. I did like the ambiguity, ambiguity of the ending. I thought the ending was quite cute. Yeah, but we won't ruin it for people who've not seen Birdman. I like to think it's a yes, whereas you like to think it's a no. No, we're both very pragmatic. Oh yeah. Uh, you you have flights of fancy. You're still young and stupid. <laughs> young and naive. Is that what it is? Whereas the world has ground me down. I'm naive for believing anything can happen in yeah. fiction. <laughs> <laughs> no, anything can happen in fiction. So, um, should we look at an email? But Luke Jacketta is the first out of the email sack this night. Listen, there is Luke's email. Proper, proper email. Came in the post. So it's a letter, like, It's a letter, yes. <laughs> Isn't this audio thing great? Because we can fake stuff. Oh, yeah. And they will never know unless I inadvertently tell them. Luke's email goes mostly. Yes. Or pets. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Luke works for Vets for Pets. Who knew? Uh, Luke's email runs thusly. Worlds will... What did you just say? <laughs> Worlds will live, worlds will die. Cap's eyebrows will show through his mask. Which they did. did they they did, yeah. 
Andy and Michael, Mandy, Michael and Aunt Mandy. <laughs> oh God, don't say that. We don't want to be Mandy, do we? <laughs> Andy and Michael, Michael and Andy, alternate per paragraph. Are you Marvel or DC? DC. Alright, uh, so I'd be the Marvel one. Yeah. So we, yeah, we have to, each issue, we have to, I always put your name first. Yeah. When I wrote the show note Shizzle, yeah. I always give you top billing. Oh, okay. That's very nice of me, I think, given yeah. that I put all the work in. Yeah, but you get the and credit everywhere. I do, I get credit. the and credit. <laughs> my, my agent yeah, worked yeah. exceptionally hard for the and credit. And Andrew Leyland. That's how it, I, I yeah. like that. I never considered that, but yeah, that and credit, worth its weight in gold. Hey guys, says Luke. Just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed your coverage of JLA Avengers slash Avengers JLA. There is no slash fiction about Avengers JLA, is there? somewhere out there in the darkest corners of the internet. Because I think we came up with enough slash about Thor's hammer and Wonder Woman's comely buttocks. Yeah. Does that count? I, I don't know. If we'd r- written it down on paper... Then, yeah. Then it would count, yeah. <laughs> uh, this one really stands out in my mind as the granddaddy of all the Marvel DC crossovers just for the depth and breadth of the characters and story elements it covers. Buziak and Perez really were the perfect creators for this comic, given their familiarity with both teams and both universes. Whilst I have never read much of the Justice League, I started reading Avengers with issue 398, so it was only a few months later that Heroes Reborn happened. But after suffering through that, I had my eyes opened by the sheer awesomeness that was the Buziak Perez Avengers in Heroes Return. So when you take that pedigree and add in the Justice League, well, that's bound to be some great comics right there. The scenes which always stand out in my mind are the respective teams being introduced to each other's universe and the suspicious, borderline, paranoid reactions. Seeing the Avengers conclude that the JLA must be tyrants who rule through terror is a hoot, and the Leaguers assuming that the heroes of the Marvel U must be maniacs because of the anti-mutant hysteria and general distrust in the papers is hilarious. To me, this very neatly encapsulates the differences between the two universes. I also love Hawkeye's line about Squadron Supreme knockoffs. This series always reminds me of a combination of Crisis on Infinite Earths and Contest of Champions, as it has elements of both. From Crisis, worlds crashing together or being wiped out, Kroner at the beginning of time, reality warping around our heroes, and so forth. From Contest of Champions, Grandmaster playing a high-stakes game, the heroes being teamed up seemingly at random, being sent all around the world in a race to retrieve different items. And since I like both of those books, this works very nicely for me. My friend Adam and I have had many a discussion about this series, and we've come to a consensus that there are two scenes that should have been included. Number one... Jarvis and Alfred squirring off, preparing to fight, when someone accidentally knocks over a vase. This snaps the two gentlemen's gentlemen out of their combative attitudes, and they work together to clean up the mess. I actually would much prefer that they were both sat with their feet up, drinking a cup of tea. Just watching everyone. Yeah, and Jarvis is complimenting Alfred on his uh, his tea-making ability. Yeah. And Alfred's complimenting Jarvis on his finger sandwiches. Oh, they fight each other over a game of chess. <laughs> oh, bowls, bowls. Oh, polo. Bowls. Polo. <laughs> they can play polo together. Cause they're very civilised, <laughs> Alfred and Jarvis. Mm-hmm. They will swap war stories. <laughs> and then they will sit and, and drink Was tea. Jarvis in the war? I don't know, probably at this probably, point. Yeah. And uh, then they could uh, watch Murder, She Wrote together. <laughs> oh, God. On Matlock. On Jag. <laughs> Number two, Wonder Man Beast Booster Golden Blue Beetle sitting at a table playing cards. All but Wonder Man are actively cheating, but he is still winning somehow. The game breaks up when Thor and Superman crash through their table, sending chips flying in all directions. 
I also have an unusual story as to how I acquired the series. Back in 2008 at Heroes Con in Charlotte, Adam had got in touch with another poster at a comics board who both frequented about buying some comics off him at the show. So we met up with the guy in his hotel room to make the sale. That sounds dubious, <laughs> doesn't it? So, several nights in a police station. Later, yes. Several encounters with a big, uh, big guy called Baby. <laughs> Only in comics collecting circles does this not end badly, is what I'm saying. Uh, Adam had got in touch with another poster we met in his room. I've said all of that. What's the the other guy mentioned to me? Oh, here we go. (laughs) That he had a long box. I'm sure he did. (laughs) Of comics. Oh, I thought we were going down a path. That we didn't want to follow. So, they went there to make a deal, and then he said he's got a long box of comics. Yeah, he's got uh, a, another box that he just wanted to get rid uh, of. There's anything that Luke could help himself. The email continues. I was pausing for somewhat comedic <laughs> effects. I don't know if it worked. Uh, Luke says, I flipped through the box, and amidst as many issues of Conan, was issue one to three of JLA Avengers. Ka-ching! I asked the guy, can I take the whole box? And he said, as long as you can carry it. Eventually, I was able to track down issue four, but I'll never forget scoring these books for free. An awesome pile of Conan comics and a free long box. That was probably the best part of the deal. Those long boxes aren't cheap. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the awesome coverage. Oh, you're very welcome, Luke. Looking forward to what's coming up. Very, very welcome. Always lovely to hear from the mighty Mr. Giaconetti. Our next email, Mark Blacks has emailed in and somebody's just texted me on my phone I'll turn the volume off because that's not very professional hello Leyland and Leyland once again you have knocked me out with your awesome gold right I thought, was, I thought we'd hit him <laughs> I was just thinking we're not violent we only hit people when we're drunk <laughs> we get the belts out ah <laughs> uh, memories <laughs> JLA Avengers says Mark is comics the way they were meant to be. Are they bad memories? I try to forget. But the welts just won't go away. Mark continues other than Crisis there has not been a story that was so epic words fail I know neither Marvel nor DC has done any story of this magnitude before or since this to me is absolutely a sequel to Crisis enjoyed Zero Hour very much and Infinite Crisis had its moments but this story should how a crisis should be done I'm a very big fan of Crisis on Infinite Earths for many reasons that are too long to describe here but I do agree in the end that these epic Crisis Zero Hour type stories made many things even more confusing This story told in four parts in one single story should be the template for all major crossovers to come. It's extremely unfortunate that another crossover never happened and may never happen. Kurt Busiek has always been a favourite of mine and I can't think of any other writer that can do this justice. I'm sure if I think on it I may come up with someone but I don't know who would come close to Busiek's truly magnificent story. George Perez, I don't know what to say. Legend, brilliant, one of a kind, the hands of the master. The best there is at what he does. None better. I guess I did know what to say. The covers are just works of art. They stand on their own. I agree with Michael that the covers to 3 and 4 should probably have been reversed. Cover 3 was so outstanding, Perez deserves an award. To make a long email even longer, they don't make stories like this anymore. Long live JLA Avengers until your next time. Your friend, Mark Lacks. Connecticut, USA. I like it when they put where they are. Thank you, Mark. This week, Chris... Chris Franklin's next. Chris is next in the email back. Mm-hmm. Robin flies the nest. Oh, we're on the Robin episode. Excellent. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Christopher. Ah, new team Titans. 
Issue 38. The comment that made a nine-year-old me cry. Yes, I admit it, I cried. Robin meant that much to me. It was the first real change I encountered in the later years of my childhood. When Jason was introduced, I do admit, I thought they may make him a new character and let Dick Robin go off to the Titans on a permanent basis. It's easy to forget, but editor Len Wein, also editing the Titans, and writer Jerry Conway had made Dick a regular cast member in Batman Detective again right after New Teen Titans got going. But I was not prepared for the gut punch of New Teen Titans 39 and Batman 368, which shipped in the same month. But even at age nine, I couldn't deny that the change was handled perfectly, and even touchingly by not only Wolfman and Perez, but Doug Munch, Don Newton, and Alfredo Alcala in Batman. Dick takes the costume off in Titans, walks into the Batcave in Batman, and hands it over to Jason. After a touching, if understated, moment between him and Bruce, Dick literally walks out of the book. It was done so well, I resent every other version of this moment. I covered this in my article on the pre-crisis Jason Todd in back issue, issue 48. Shameless plug. As for the Titans, I think Donna being the mature one of the group was intentional by Wolfman and Perez. The duo tended to portray most of the Titans as being more mature, but Donna was the mother hen. Dick was often too wrapped up in his bat-inflicted angst, but Donna was more level-headed. This is seen in New Teen Titans Annual 2, where she questions Dick's thirst for vengeance in the vigilante case. In fact, Donna, at age 19, marries an older man, Terry Long, in issue 50, a tale which Cindy and I just covered on Supermates. Plug, thanks to Andy's suggestion of a wedding-themed episode. Robin's costume, consisting of a separate red vest over a green short unitard, was based on the way Burt Ward's actual Robin costume was made. Robin has said he used Ward as his touchstone for drawing Robin, and it shows here. Other artists treated the costume as a red tunic with green sleeves and green shorts, but I seem to recall the detective issue drawn by Don Heck that showed the costume made like this as well. As for Deathstroke, Terror in Tales of the Teen Titans 55, after Terror's death, changed and asked Slade if he slept with Terror. He answers, does it matter? What's that tell you? I agree with Andy. Wolfman and Perez really turned the screws on the readers expecting Terra to change her stripes at the last minute. Turns out she was more crazy and evil than even Slade had accounted for. Writers who have attempted to write her otherwise deserve a good slap. I really enjoyed the Batman Adventures The Lost Years Mini, filled in the gaps between flashbacks in the episode Old Wounds and Tim's intro in Sins of the Fathers whilst adapting those episodes. I prefer an amicable split between Dick and Bruce, but can't deny the animated crew and Beta handled it very well. The animated Tim has a bit of Carrie Kelly's origin in him as well, but when the Batboat takes him and an injured Batman back to the cave, it's straight out of Dark Knight Returns. Crazy Quilt was indeed the villain in that Brave and the Bold episode, which also chronicled the show's version of how Batman and Robin grew apart, giving us our first look at Robin in his grown-up Earth 2 costume. Since he was the first villain to give Jason a proper beatdown in Batman 368, I've never considered him a lightweight. Slightly goofy, yes, but lightweight, no. One of these days I'll even give Damien another chance, but not today. Grumpy old fanboy mood. I did enjoy your coverage and accents. Dick, unwilling to believe Bruce is dead, is just part of living in the DCU. In actuality, it's probably the most sane response. Oh, and a Nutella podcast? Cindy and our little girl Danielle would listen to that. Can't stand the stuff myself. Well, you and I, Chris, will go off and do a Snickers bar podcast while you're all doing your Nutella podcasts. Thank you for those little tidbits about the episode. Uh, we're going to move on from the email section. Welcome to the jungle. I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, I was just going to say I'll plug a show. Probably one of mine. <laughs> Self-promotion. It's the way to be. And we'll, uh, we'll be back after these messages. 
Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Welcome back to the second week of Just Good Comics, a mini-series of episodes all about entertaining comics we've had in the big old book of possibilities for a number of years that somehow slipped through the cracks in terms of actually getting covered. The first pick this week is another childhood favourite, well, for me anyway. What Michael will think about it is anyone's guess. This was originally scheduled for a series of shows we were going to do called Titanic Team-Ups. That, for whatever reason, just never happened. I think the Superman, Superman one last week, that was also part of that. Yeah. That little scribbled bit. Let's do team-ups episodes! Well, we did crossover team-ups. We did crossover team-ups, but we never did cool, just good team-ups. Which was the plan, but we, we never did that. First few issues we'll be looking at this week, I first read as a bumper double issue called the Captain Britain Summer Special. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. What the hell is a summer special? Well, lovely listener, in case you're too young or too foreign to know what these were, I'll tell you. Along with the annuals that came out at Christmas, Marvel and other comics publishers would also release summer and winter specials that were thicker than usual comics with either double-length stories or two-part stories edited together. This is where Marvel UK would publish material that didn't quite fit the regular weekly comics. For example, around the time of the release of this Captain Britain summer special, the Spider-Man summer special published the Spider-Man Punisher story from Giant Size Spider-Man 1 or 2, I forget which. Other specials around this time printed stories like What If Uncle Ben Had Lived from What If and The Goblin Lives from Spectacular Spider-Man magazine. The reason they had simple titles, like summer or winter specials, was because they could release them in, say, May for the summer editions and September for the winter editions, and they would stay on the shelves for a number of months, increasing the chances that they would sell. I never read any of the Captain Britain weekly comics that were published prior to this, and I do suspect I bought this, or rather had my parents buy this for me, simply because Spider-Man was in it. I loved it upon reading it and promptly set off trying to pick up the original issues, which I learned were issues of Marvel Team-Up, number 65 and 66, to be exact, cover dated January and February of 1978. This was part of a pretty good run of Marvel Team-Up by writer Chris Claremont and artist John Byrne and Dave Hunt, and these issues featured Spider-Man teaming up with Captain Britain in what I think may have been his introduction to the US readership. The cover for the UK Summer Special was repurposed from Team-Up issue 65 and features Captain Britain and Spider-Man battling on a construction site over New York. At last, the cover copy screams, Marvel's British superhero sensation explodes on the stateside scene. And guess who's caught in the blast? Saying he was a superhero sensation is probably hyperbole. Mm Mm-hmm. 
just, you know. According to Mike's Amazing World of DC, this cover was by George Perez and Joe Sinnott. Which I have to confess, I would never have guessed. This doesn't look like George Perez at all. No, it doesn't. Does it? I mean, it's it's a good cover, but there's nothing at all on that that screams George Perez, is there? No. It's, a, it's an alright cover. It's a cover? Yeah. <laughs> it's a cover in that it is the front of the magazine, and when you open it, the magazine begins. Yeah, yeah. I think we've said that before. I like it. I like uh, the position of the characters. I like that it makes it look like Captain Britain's winning, which is never in any danger of yeah. happening in the actual issue. He, he, he needs his spotlight. He does. Uh, Captain Britain costume's not great, is it? No, it's not. It's a little bit lame. It's all red with the lion on it. Only the burriest hint of the Union flag on his gauntlets around his wrist. And they were probably trying to come up with an image of a red lion or a beef eater, but it doesn't really work, does it? No. It's bad enough that his mask is one of those crap half-head things that reveal the character's her, which is silly. Yeah. They never work for me. Wouldn't they have to be really tight to fit and not fall off? I guess. I kind of like them, though. Why do you like them? They kind of look cool. Do you think, do you think exposing the her looks cool? Yeah. Oh, alright. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I will yield to your, uh, your convincing <laughs> of me that, that that's good. Because you worked very hard at that argument, I think. I, I, I like it, but... Excellent. You, you Excellent. don't, No, I think, I think they're a bit silly, to be honest with you. Uh, introducing Captain Britain opens with Spider-Man swinging across the city late again for an appointment with the Dean of Students. Arriving an hour late, Peter is introduced to an exchange student from Thames University in merry old England. Turns out one of the forms Peter signed when he enrolled in college was one asking if he would be happy to take in a foreign student as a lodger should the need arise. Peter doesn't even recall signing this form, but the $50 a week he'll get paid for putting Brian Braddock up eases the blow somewhat. Peter and Brian, who apparently have nothing better to do, owe the life of a student, hit the coffee bean to meet Mary Jane and Peter's other pals, and then spend the night on the town. Over the pond at Heath Row, things aren't going as well for Brian as they are stateside. See, a consortium from the Magia have, through the use of black magic, sorcery, spreadsheets and guesswork, compiled a list of people who may be Captain Britain, which doesn't seem terribly scientific to me. To put these people out of the Magia's misery, they have decided that killing all of these suspects wouldn't be overkill at all. And it's this level of over-the-top thinking that has led the Magia to where it is today. Their operatives in Europe can handle the work here, but one target, Brian Braddock, is currently in the US, and to expedite matters, they have recruited Arcade, one of the US's top assassins, to take care of business. Brian is, of course, Captain Britain. Hands up if you didn't see that coming, and he wakes up on Peter's couch the next day, just in time to see Spider-Man leaving Peter's room. There are now two choices. Brian could either conclude that Peter is Spider-Man, the more logical conclusion, or he would, rather stupidly I feel, opt for option B, that Spider-Man just kidnapped Peter Parker. Guess which Brian goes for? 
Having made his decision, Brian dons the costume of the fabled protector of the British Isles and speeds after the wall crawler. Of course, this is Marvel team-up, so this misunderstanding leads to a fight. Proving that Brian isn't the only one not thinking in this issue, it takes Spider-Man an inordinate amount of time to deduce that the blonde, English-accented man chasing him is in fact the same blonde, English-accented man staying at his apartment, which is fortunate as there's a couple of pages worth of punching to fit in here. They realise that the page count has caught up with them just in time for Arcade to strike. He sucks Spider-Man and Captain Britain up in a garbage truck because... why the hell not? Yeah. <laughs> did that comedy pause work? It did, yeah, yeah, excellent. Uh, there is no such thing as Thames University. Uh, there was at the time that this comic was published the Thames Valley College of Higher Education, which is now called the University of West London. But, you know, there's no such thing as Wakanda either, is there? Don't you? So, it <laughs> doesn't really matter Fair in the enough. grand scheme of things, does it? <laughs> uh, something that I didn't realise as a kid reading this precious little of the page time is given to the actual plot yeah. of the comic. If we take out the mandatory superhero misunderstanding and fight and the obligatory origin of Captain Britain, there are only seven pages of this comic, 17 pages in total, are actual story. Yeah. Seven pages is actual story. It's, it's a two-parter. Ten pages is filler. Yeah, yeah. So basically what you're saying is it's a one-parter stretched out into two. <laughs> yeah. This is one 22-page comic. Yeah. But at the time, they only did 17 pages. So they thought, screw it, let's make it a two-parter. Yeah. That's what they did, isn't it? Decompression, not just something <laughs> that happened in the 2000s. That's all I'm going to say. Ahead of the time, yeah. they, Chris Clermont was very much ahead of his time. Excellent splash page, though of uh, Spider-Man swinging across New York. Very colourful. Spider-Man swinging through Balamora. <laughs> That's actually really cool. Who has garishly green cars like that, though? Uh, well, who has pink buildings? Yeah, yeah, so, sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the garish green car is the least of your problem when you've got a pink building. It is Balamora. You're yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Downtown New York is Balamora. Miles Jupp's having a vacation. <laughs> That's actually really cool. Uh, it is, it's a good splash page, though. I mean, I think it's probably better in black and white. Yeah. Which is how I first read it. But uh, Burn draws a pretty sleek Spider-Man, which is always cool. Uh, there is some nice Peter Parker stuff in this as well. He doesn't remember volunteering his name as somebody who'll put up an exchange student, which I thought was very realistic and believable. Um, certainly a lot more convincing than a lot of ways people are brought together in issues of Marvel team-up. Yeah. So that worked quite nicely. And I still think that seeing Peter and Brian hit the town with Peter's friends would have been much more fun than seven pages of fighting. And they would have been attacked and they'd have to find a way to slip away. Yeah, well, that would have been much better, yeah. Because, as I've got a note later on that we'll get into... (laughs) How Arcade actually finds Brian makes no sense Yeah. in the context of the story. Whereas having him go to ESU to find Brian yeah. and stumble across Peter and Brian having a few jars with Mary Jane and her buddies and then both having to sneak off 
separately to change to do what they've got to do would have been more plausible yeah. than what we actually got. But you need the obligatory superhero fight. Because this is an issue of Marvel Team Up. Yeah. As we, we have mentioned. Uh, when Spider-Man and Captain Britain do actually meet, which happens on page 11, I don't believe for a second that Captain Britain's mask obscures his accent. Yeah. Like he says in the dialogue here. I could just about buy it muffling his voice. <laughs> yeah, because that's... Um, thank you, babe. <laughs> because that's a standard Spider-Man trope, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I can just about go with that. But the accent... <laughs> exactly. The accent, no, I don't buy that at all. And then you had my condition to die. voice. Theatricality and deception are the cloud in the mind of the League of Shadows. What, what? <laughs> so, no, I don't buy that at all. It just makes Spider-Man out to be a bit stupid, doesn't it? Yeah. He's attacked by an English-accented blonde dude at the exact moment that he's got an English-accented blonde dude as a partner in his, his flat. An, an English blonde dude who just broke into his room. Yes. No apparent reason. Well, Spider-Man doesn't see Captain Britain leave his apartment. So, yeah. fair play there. But, uh... Yeah, it, it's not the conclusion I would have leapt to yeah. were I to see Spider-Man leaving Peter Parker's room <laughs> and no sign of Peter. My first thought would be, well, bugger me, Peter Parker's Spider-Man. <laughs> not, oh, Spider-Man must have kidnapped Peter Parker, despite the fact he's not carrying Peter Parker, and Peter Parker is nowhere to be seen in this room, <laughs> and, oh, let's just have a look in the bog. No, he's not taking a dump. Hmm. So they're both really, really stupid. Yeah. In this yeah. comic, it has to be said that did stick out. Yes, it's it's uh, it, it makes Brian look just as thick as Spider-Man. Um, neither of them come out particularly well, do they? No. In this, the fight between the two is well handled. There's some decent action. Captain Britain's origin is steeped in Stonehenge mysticism because why not? Yeah, I thought his origin was a bit out of place. Yeah, two-page origin in the middle of the fight, just because... It was a four-page origin, wasn't it? Is it? It's, uh, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it goes on for four pages. So, yeah, there you go. I mean, it was useful. I guess. For people who didn't know Captain Captain Britain's origin, which, you know, it's all right. It does make the pacing a little bit lopsided. You're absolutely right. But, you know, Clermont probably felt the need to introduce the character to an American audience, and this was the most expedient way of doing it Captain Britain I think this was his first US appearance yeah I could be wrong I didn't look that up because I couldn't be bothered but you know it's it's alright well could that not have been a prologue and then you kick in with your Spider-Man yeah possibly or if they'd restructured the story in the way that we said and they met up after Arcade attacked the nightclub trying to find Brian Braddock and then Captain Britain relates his story to Spider-Man at that point and says I am here protecting Brian. Yes, that's why I'm here. That's why there's two British dudes just hanging around ESU. I'm his bodyguard. Uh, He he takes photos of me. That would totally work. And Peter Parker would have to go, alright, that sounds a bit stupid, but... It sounds dumb when you say it, but when I say it, it's perfectly acceptable. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Arcade is hired to kill Brian Braddock, right? Yeah. Not Captain Britain. Yeah. And especially not Spider-Man. Yeah. Okay, right, this is what I was alluding to earlier on. Why then does he have a giant garbage truck patrolling the streets to find Brian Braddock? Clearly, 
he would know that Brian was at ISU. That wouldn't take a great deal of detective work. Hell, the Magia probably know that Brian Braddock has gone to be an exchange student at Empire State University yeah. and would have provided Arcade with that information. Yeah. So surely the smart thing for Arcade to do would be to just go to ESU, maybe with his garbage truck. You know, <laughs> he spent a lot of money on it, yeah. so he may as well get some use out of it. But here he's just wandering the streets aimlessly. He comes across Captain Britain and Spider-Man. And goes, I'll have them anyway. And goes, yeah, I'll have them. Unless Which is a staggering coincidence that he's not necessary. Unless he is the cleverest person in this story. Yeah, but Even that's not saying Bra- a lot, is Brian it? Brian Braddock is a blonde British person. Captain Britain's here in New York, who is also a blonde British person. Yeah, well, we'll come to that when we get to part two. But this that adds a layer of coincidence to the story that didn't need to be there. Yeah. Unless Arcade just spends his nights trundling around New York with his garbage thing. <laughs> he could too. Maybe he just plays a version of the most dangerous game. He just kidnaps random people <laughs> off the street, throws them into Murder World and sees how they do. And if they survive, they survive. And if they don't, well, he's going to miss them. Yeah, when he's when he's not hit, uh, doing Hitman contracts. He's, <laughs> he's civilians in his thing. When he's not doing Hitman contracts, yeah, or he's taking uh, homeless people off the streets. <laughs> Let them into Arcade Murder World and say, if you survive, I'll give you a million dollars. Arcade bum fights. <laughs> yes, and he films them and uploads them to the internet because he's that yeah. kind of scumbag. Yeah. So yeah, that, that totally works. Uh, we're not going to talk about this until we've read both of them, but there's some good adverts in this because it's a 70s Star Wars t-shirt, Tarzan calendar, Tolkien calendar, Frazetta calendar, poster bonanza, you can have a Farrah Fawcett poster, a John Travolta poster, a Jamie Summers poster, a Steve Austin poster, a Donnie and Marie poster, or, in Group B, Kiss, The Hardy Boys, Grizzly Adams, Christy McNichol, and Beretta. Okay. Now, first of all, I think it's important to, to ask the question, why are Lee Majors and Lindsay Wagner billed as Steve and Jamie, whereas John Travolta and Farrah Fawcett are built with their real names? That's a good question. Excellent, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, and it's the same down there as well. The Hardy Boys and Grizzly Adams, <laughs> were they not actors? Well, are they not stills from the show? Yeah, oh yeah, it's stills from Six well, Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman. But, you know, it's still a poster of Lee Majors and, and Lindsay Wagner. Because they were hot in 1970. Were they? Yes, they were very hot. You can buy pizzazz! <laughs> Uh, Stan Lee, they're advertising pizzazz. I am very impressed by how Stan Lee's hairline moved forward as he got older. Yeah. It's quite, that caricature of him, uh, he's got a proper 70s bouffant going on, hasn't he? So, yeah, there's a letters page, but not much happens in it. And, you know, Star Wars The Treasury Edition came out. Uh, one of the many printings of the Star Wars Treasury Edition. And the hostess fruit pies out was the mighty Thor in the Dingaling <laughs> family. Which the hanging hammer the, is just some of the most horrendous southern stereotypes <laughs> ever presented in a major Marvel comic. Anyway, that was Marvel Team Up 65. Uh, Marvel Team Up 66 had a cover by John Byrne and Frank Gaiacoya of Spider Man helping a wounded Captain Britain as they are chased by a giant ball with big spikes in it uh, and an oversized pinball machine. How the ball rolls with spikes. It's probably best ignored. 
for for reasons of sanity. Yeah, because that would probably just uh, just drive you a, a little bit insane, wouldn't it? The creative team was climbing up, burn and hunt the same as last time. Trapped in murder world where everything can go wrong because it's planned that way is the blurb on an otherwise pretty cool cover. I do like the caricature of Arcade. Yeah, <laughs> and his big cheesy grin. <laughs> I do like Arcade. <laughs> Don't know why, he just abuses me. Murder World is also the title of the story. Spider-Man and Cats in Britain wake up inside Bill Finger's worst nightmare, a life-size pinball machine, and they are the balls. A flick of a switch and they're catapulted up the aisle. A voice rings out, Arcade welcomes you to Murder World, where nobody ever survives. He's not wrong. As Spider-Man and Captain Britain start bouncing around the machine, electric shock bumpers hitting them with charges as they careen around. Spider-Man quickly tires of this and manages to break the plexiglass ball he finds himself contained in and then positions himself in such a way as to do the same for the good captain. Burly a breath is taken when Spidey and Cap B are caught standing upon a trap door, falling into a secondary trap. Captain Britain appears in a funhouse mirror attraction, his lady Courtney Ross kept in a bubble with her rapidly running out. Cap attempts to rescue her as the mirror images come to life around him. Spider-Man, meanwhile, finds himself up against robot cowboys and futuristic fighter jets, but he pulls the old, we're clearly on a holodeck trick, and rips open the wall, exposing Murder World's innards. He makes his way slowly down the Jeffreys tube. Captain Britain, meanwhile, finds his attempts to rescue Courtney spoiled by Arcade flooding the room. Spider-Man decides that the best offence is a good defence and starts shredding up the circuitry, which leads to the machinery in Captain Britain's room to start going haywire, but Cap, B, and Courtney are too busy drowning to cur. Spider-Man then makes his way to Arcade's control centre, but is distracted when he sees Captain Britain drowning and makes the scene. Both men then free Courtney and follow the sound of explosions as Spider-Man ripping the guts out of the Jeffreys tube finally takes effect. The duo flee and reappear in a New York alleyway from out of the sewers. They are brought up to speed by Captain Jean DeWolf, who just happens by. She conveniently wraps up the plot, telling them that Interpol learned of the contract on Captain Britain's life, but the heads of the Magia they were tailing were found full of holes, leaving them with an investigative dead end. Arcade also learns this news stood amidst the ruins of Murder World. With the men who hired him dead, there is no contract. Arcade isn't too concerned. First he's going to rebuild Murder World, and then he's going after Spider-Man for a rematch. He obviously doesn't consider Captain Britain to be worth his time. (laughs) Uh, Arcade, like Spider-Man in the last issue, has to try really, really hard to not figure out that Brian Braddock is Captain Britain. Yeah. It's like they're trying hard not to... Yeah, they're trying hard to not put together the quite obvious yeah. strands of logic <laughs> that are lying right in front of them. Um, last issue, Arcade was told there were 50 possible candidates mm-hmm. that could be Captain Britain. Yeah. And he was hired to find the only one that is in America. Yeah. Right? He then captures Spider-Man and your actual Captain Britain. Yeah. What logical conclusion would you deduce from this, therefore? That the candidate is Spider-Man. Yeah, alright, okay. I I would deduce that also. Or, and I'm just going to throw this at you, 
how about deducing that, wait a minute, the one guy that was on the list that is in America that I have been hired <laughs> to kill, do you think he could actually be Captain Britain? Well, you'd think that, but apparently not. You know, do you not think that your information may be useful to the Magia? <laughs> I mean, he could recoup some of his losses back from this. At the very least, he could say, ha ha, I know who Captain Britain is, and for one million of your Earth dollars, I will tell you. Yeah. But he's no, just like, oh, I don't care. <laughs> he's just Captain Britain, though, isn't it? <laughs> he's okay, he's not really interested, yeah. is he? As long as he can have some fun in his murder world, that's all he's bothered that's about. That's why he wants a rematch with Spider. Spidey was clever enough to know that it was a set. <laughs> Spidey was clever enough to figure out that it was a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute, this is a Q episode. <laughs> yeah, at least we're not trapped on here doing bloody Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, the story establishes that the spikes in the ball pop out, which is a slight explanation as to how this thing rolls around, but surely the spikes popping out would just stop it from rolling. Unless it rolls on the spikes. I suppose it could do. Yeah. But then you've got gaps between the spikes to avoid being hit by the spike. There is that. Yeah. Mm. I don't think Arcade thought that through, really, did you? When he's, when he's redesigning Murder World, yeah. do you think he'll go, yeah, the ball with the spikes, that didn't really work. Let's, let's move on from the ball with the spikes. Um, I really like these. I mean, you may not think it from the sheer amount of piss-taking that we've done. I mean, the story isn't really all that. No. Pretty much every arcade story is exactly the same. Yeah, which is my problem with arcade. I like him, it's just, I'm just reading the same story over yeah. and over again. He is, he is like Mysterio, isn't he? There's yeah. two or three good stories to be told with arcade, and then that's it. Yeah. Yeah, he had appearances in X-Men, and then, have you read anything recently about arcade? No. I can't remember the last time he appeared in a comic, can you? No. Unless, I would imagine Bendis or Mark Miller's killed him. Yeah, pr- probably, yeah. <laughs> At this point. But, you know, there's a good dynamic as well between Spider-Man and Captain Britain. They seem to get along quite well, that's quite nice. Peter Parker and Brian Braddock also get along quite well. Again, I think it would have been more fun to see more of them out of costume. Yeah. Than ten pages of fight and origin that we got last time. But like I say, had this been a 44-page story instead of 34 we may have gotten more of their interaction. So, this was a time when you're only 17 or 18 pages, so the lower page count meant that it's characterisation, it's thrown out the window, isn't it? Yeah. When Ronald D. Moore did his audio commentaries on Battlestar Galactica, he says, when you're cutting a story, the first thing that gets cut is humour and character. Yeah. Plot always has to stay, because the story has to make sense. I don't know that this one made a lot of sense... No. But, you know, it was alright. The ending is very, very rushed. And all the loose ends get tied up in basically a sentence of exposition from Captain Jean DeWolf. Who was just the... Who just happened by... Yeah. At the exact moment that Spider-Man and uh, Captain Britain pop up out of the uh, manhole. And there's also the fact that Brian is now Peter's roommate that I don't recall ever be mentioned again. Not yeah. only a Marvel team-up, but you think that would have an impact on Amazing or Spectacular Spider-Man, wouldn't you? Well, the magic is not a threat now. So no, because, so... You can just go back to England, to the Thames well, University. Well, no, but he'd come to ESU as an exchange student. 
They don't mention in the story that he's coming here was in any way to get away from the Magia. Well, did he not, like, fake the paperwork? Since the Thames University doesn't exist. <laughs> no, I get the impression that in the Marvel Universe, Thames University does oh, actually exist. Unless Black Panther is ruling a fictional <laughs> continent that he made up. And Kazar lives in <laughs> yeah, a Kazar, all the paperwork that Black Panther and Kazar have to say, well, I claim this land if, is mine. What if Kazar and his little pet tiger... Zabu. Thing, yeah, yeah, it was Calvin and Hobbes growing up. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes grown up with Kazar and Zabu. Yeah. That's actually really good. I'm, uh, I'm very fond of that. Yeah, it's, you know, that's never mentioned again. There's some good action beats. And as a kid, I wanted to see Spider-Man do cool stuff. And fighting in arcades murder world is definitely cool stuff. Yeah. Isn't it? And Spider-Man uses his brains to get out of it and burns out it's clean and pleasing he seems to have a ball drawing the oversized props which were more typified which more typified a 50s Batman story it's a good read it works better when you read both of them back to back because it's a little less lopsided then isn't it yeah it's like the entire conclusion of the story is in part two whereas act one and act two is in part one. Yeah. So the story is a little bit lopsided because of that. But if you see this in the cheapy bins, I do recommend it. Curl, Lermont and Byrne at this point could do no wrong. And this run on Marvel team-up that they did together is quite underrated. Uh, Something I attribute to the team-up books not being considered proper Spider-Man comics. And and the Incas as well. I think Mm. if Terry Austin had inked this, it would be more fondly remembered than it is... What did you think of a comic from 1978? Which is always fun. I I liked arcade in it. And that's it? That's all you have to say about it? I just... just, uh, Go on! It's easy to take the piss out of it. Oh, it's exceptionally easy to take the piss out of it. But it's not so bad you can't take the piss out of it, but... No, it it is in no means bad. Yeah, it's just in no means good. I like it. (laughs) I think it's quite fun. But I, I'm the first to admit there's a lot of lopsidedness to it, and some of the plot bits don't quite work. Yeah. As well as they the should do. But it's it's a fun comic. And it got Spidey in Arcade. It did. And uh, does Spider-Man meet Arcade again? I don't know. I don't remember. You know, I will have to look that up, because I'm sure that he does. And I know he shows up in an issue of X-Men, so I'd have to go and Max's Amazing World when we're not recording and have a look. Uh, the adverts this time, it's all about collector's comics. Apparently you can get Star Wars, 2001, The Eternals, more 2001, Logan's Run and Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man as collector's comics. Don't know what that would be all about. Conan as a coin, which is always fun. But the bullpen bulletins this week is much more interesting in that it tells us that Universal Studios just completed a live-action, two-hour special TV movie... Of the Incredible Hulk. Anyway, says Stan, what do you think they called old Doc Banner? Bruce? Uh-huh. Bob? Forget it. They've decided to rename him Dave. Well, actually, they never called him Dave in the entire run of the series. But this early on, he was complaining that they changed his name to Dr. David Banner. Which is fair enough, isn't it? Yeah. So what's wrong with Bruce? I don't know. That's all. Uh, the next Just Good comic is another one of mine, because I get to pick a couple, because... Ah, yeah, ah. yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't here last week. I did tons of notes. I was here last week. Because you weren't here. Oh, was the week before? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, time is an illusion. Lunchtime, doubly so. Uh, it, this is an auditor. Steve Ditko 
left a huge shadow over his co-creation Spider-Man. But when John Romita came along, he excelled at not only not aping Ditko, but he also successfully made Spider-Man his own, picking up his own fan base and making the strip more popular than ever, aided arguably by the success of the 1967 cartoon series. Ditko's other strip for Marvel, Doctor Strange, however, is arguably Ditko's greatest contribution to Marvel, featuring many of the idiosyncrasies of Dicto's art and his flair for the bizarre. That alone is probably why the good Doctor has struggled since Ditko left. No artist that followed him ever made Strange anything more than a pastiche of what Ditko did, meaning the strip struggled to find its own identity with the loss of its creator. It's probably also the reason I never read any Doctor Strange after the Ditko run, and even then... I only sporadically picked them up, although I do now both have both masterworks and have read them both. Strange was, however, very influential, with the TV show Charmed owing a great deal to the work Ditko did on this strip, and Buffy's Hellmouth being a similar plot device to Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum. Doctor Strange also has the distinction of being solely a Ditko creation, and is admitted as such by Stan Lee in a letter to Jerry Bales in 1963. Hopefully this means that Ditko will get a sole creator credit when Doctor Strange becomes a movie next year starring the ubiquitous Benedict Cumberbatch. Or Cumberbund. Whatever his name is. That's his name. (laughs) Ditko's art on Doctor Strange is a thing of beauty. All Dali-esque landscapes and trippy visuals that other artists just couldn't compete with. I first read Doctor Strange's origin when Marvel Tales issue 137 reprinted Amazing Fantasy 15. Given that Spider-Man is only 11 pages long and not wanting to publish an issue with 11 blank pages at the back, Marvel republished the origin of Doctor Strange, the 8-page introduction to the character. I was, even at 10 or 11 years of age, impressed by how dark a strip it was. Stephen Strange was a man full of hubris, and, as is the case in such stories, these character traits were used to teach him, and by extension the readers, a valuable lesson. It was not a happy story, as a lot of Marvel origins weren't, but it was compelling and provocative. Sadly, I never really got into Strange after that, other than a few of the Ditko strips. The only other time Doctor Strange has grabbed me in any meaningful way was in the early 1980s, when Marvel really could do no wrong. Roger Stern took over the comic as writer and did what he always did. He emphasised the character and relationships, aided by artists like Michael Golden and Paul Smith, although, despite some house ads of the time, not Frank Miller. Stern made Strange the best he'd been in years. Issue 56, cover dated December 1982, has a symbolic cover by the aforementioned Paul Smith of Strange Stood, presumably on the astral plane. A Mystic Reborn was written by Roger Stern with art by Paul Smith and inked by Terry Austin, who we just mentioned. It's all planned to dovetail. Is it, though? No. <laughs> do you like that cover? I do, yeah. It was. Uh, I think that's the cover of The Essential as well, isn't it? The essential volume that collects these issues, I'm pretty sure that's the cover of that. It's good, isn't it, because it's an up-angle shot, which makes Doctor Strange look quite tall. I like the planets. The stuff in the background. Yeah, Yeah. the space. And the swirly stuff. Yeah. Yes, it's uh, going to be interesting to see how they pull this off with uh, Benedict Cumbersnatch. (laughs) Is that not his name? Cumbersnatch. I don't know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'm pretending not to. No, I don't know what one of them is. 
Morgana Blessing, a journalist, has managed to convince Dr. Stephen Strange to agree to an interview. She hopes this prestigious conversation will be taped by her video business and will then be sold as a pilot on occult history to cable stations. Wong, Strange's version of Alfred, and Sarah Wolf, Strange's business manager and social secretary, are confused by the Doctor's sudden desire to have a high profile. As Strange takes his position before the camera, he retells his origins, how his oversized ego led him to his own destruction, and how he found a new lease of life thanks to the Ancient One, how he was bequeathed the enchanted amulet and the orb of Agamotto to help him fight evil on this and other planes of reality. How he found his Sanctum Sanctorum in Greenwich Village, a focus for many supernatural elements, and how Wong, descendant of many who had served the Ancient One, was to become his manservant. Slavery's obviously passed Doctor Strange by, hasn't it? Yeah. Wong is surprised again by how much the Doctor is revealing. However, it all becomes apparent that Strange has lured the filmmakers here where they can do no damage. For these seemingly innocent media personnel are in actuality Demononicus, Adria and Caelsius, or Caelsius, or however you pronounce that, minions of Baron Mordo. Adria scoffs, refusing to believe that Strange knew their true form, but Strange says it is better to keep a known evil where one can keep one's eye on it. They flee into the house to plot and kill. Morgana confesses she knew nothing of this, something Strange also knew, and she asks, what if these three find escape? Doctor Strange replies, there is no escape. The three minions of Mordo find this out to their cost. A strange fight on the astral plane. But Adria manages to procure an orb of great power. An orb that chills Strange to the bone. Adria obviously feels that what is bad for Strange is good for her. But her spell actually causes all living beings within range to be cast into the purple dimension. Only the fact that Strange was in his astral form saved his life. With the danger past, Morgana and Strange have a conversation and learn both are confused over their feelings for the other. As the story ends, another begins, perhaps, with Morgana and Strange as more than just friends. Do you like this one? Uh, yeah, I did actually. I mean, once we got past all the, uh, the, the origin. See, I picked these because they both feature extended origins of the two characters that we've covered this week, did, Captain did, Britain did you? and Doc. You're not falling for this at all, are you? <laughs> but it worked well. Yeah. Even if it was just pure coincidence that you got Captain Britain's origin and uh, Doctor Strange's origin in the same issue, I mean, the same episode. It's a shame you didn't get Spider-Man's origin. Yeah. It's a shame he didn't have a, a whiny uh, moment <laughs> as well, but uh, he didn't. Uh, one of the few Doctor Strange comics I actually picked up as a kid, I think I was drawn to this because Roger Stern was the writer. And I think at this time, wasn't he deep into writing Amazing Spider-Man, which is one of the best Spider-Man runs? Yeah, Amazing Spider-Man 235, which I don't know off the top of my head what that is. I think it's the end of the Tarantula four-parter where Tarantula gets turned into a big real-life spider and then gets squished yeah. uh, with Will-O-The-Wisp in it. I think that's uh, it's around that time. And Paul Smith was the artist, and he'd been working on the X-Men, which I was also dabbling with at this point. This story stuck with me as it retold dabbling as in Master of the Mystic Arts, dabbling with the mystery. Do you see what I was... Do you like what I was... Oh, yeah. I think this stuck because it retold the origin. And that had just been reprinted in Marvel Tales. Um, which at this point was just starting to reprint the Lee Ditko Spider-Man material. 
Um, this was, I thought this was a pretty decent story in and of itself. Stern excelled at this time in streamlining Origin, scraping off any elements that were unwanted or had been added over the years and refining them to include other elements that had been added and made sense. He did it with Captain America and Spider-Man. He does it here um, with uh, Doctor Strange. The retelling's all flashback. Yeah. Isn't it? Which So it's not quite um, a detailed origin retelling like he did for the others. And it lacks the creepy, dark undercurrents of the, the original Ditko strip. But everything's here for you to to pick up yeah. who Doctor Strange is and what and he's all about. It's it? only really there because he later fights the, the apostles of Mordu. Of Mordu. So it's basically there just to set up the conclusion. Yeah. But, you know, they could could conceivably take some of this for the film, although I suspect the film will be based on Brian K. Vaughan's series. What was that called? The Oath. I can't remember. Marcus Martin did the art for. So I suspect that, uh, that that will be what the film's based upon. You know who could have played a decent Doctor Strange? Whom? Timothy Dalton. He could, couldn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Timothy Dalton would have been a good Doctor Strange. Do you think he's a bit too old now? Could be old Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah. Not everyone has to be in the 20s. Yeah, tell the CW that. <laughs> 12 year old crime fighters. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, actually, that's, that's actually really, really good. Timothy Dalton would have been a good Doctor Strange. Yeah, very well, very well pointed out. I, suppose that the, I think this made more sense as well. Doctor Strange fandom tended to skew a little bit older than other readers. You yeah. know who's a big Doctor Strange fan? Richard O'Brien. <laughs> was it? He's a massive Doctor Strange comic book fan, yeah. So, that, that kind of makes sense, because wasn't this more or less Sandman before Sandman? I mean, I, I can't imagine Neil Gaiman wasn't at least influenced somewhat by Doctor Strange. And the battles that go on in the Doctor Strange comic do seem to be more of a an intellectual exercise. And it's just possible that as kids, or as a kid, like I was, uh, Doctor Strange's more esoteric storytelling just didn't appeal to me. But I actually thought this was pretty damn good. Mm. It's it's that kind of one issue done in one story that was instrumental in getting me into comics in the first place. You never have had to have read a Doctor Strange comic before this one. No. You never have to read a Doctor Strange comic again, and this would just work as a really nice one-issue story. It gives you everything you need to know, and the art's lovely and clean. Paul Smith and Terry Austin are exquisite in this, never stealing from Ditko, but making the astral plane and... Strange's sorcerer's ways in a style that is recognisable. The shot of Strange, especially on the last panel of page 14, where he says there is no escape, almost makes Strange a badass. Oh yeah, when his head pops up in the Dali painting. Yeah. And there's just so much of it. This is just such a good issue. Even people who don't like Doctor Strange, I think, could pick this one up and really enjoy it. This is still, to this day, the only run of Doctor Strange I've read other than the Ditko stuff. Well, you know what I liked about it? Well, is that ultimately it was the bad guys who ended up killing themselves. Yeah, they, they do themselves in, don't they? Yeah. Because, see, one of the things I do seem to recall about Doctor Strange stories is that he will always try and warn them. You know, what you're doing is going to lead yeah. to your own death. So basically, you can then turn around at the end and go, well, I told you. <laughs> so it's your own death fault. You're now contempt <laughs> to a hell dimension. Deal with it. Which seems fair enough. Yeah. Because he does actually uh, do that. Love it. I really genuinely love this issue. I'm not a huge fan of Doctor Strange, like I keep saying. Um, Do you like it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's good, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's alright. I don't know why this was in the book. Why were we covering this one? 
Do you remember? Huh? We were just going to do a Doctor Strange episode for the hell of doing a Doctor uh, Strange maybe, episode, possibly. Yeah. It is entirely possible. Um, there's adverts for the new season of cartoons. Let's see how many of these got over here. Sylvester and Tweety, Daffy and Speedy. I don't remember who Speedy was. Didn't Speedy like Gonzalez. Oh, hey, right. Him. Right, not... The, no, no, it's not a drug ex. It's not a drug <laughs> reference. No. Uh, that was followed by the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show. I think, and I could be wrong, yeah. but I think they were just old cartoons recut together to make new shows. Yeah. I don't think they made new... So they made Looney Tunes two separate cartoons. Yeah, so I don't think they were actually new cartoons. I could be wrong. Gilligan's Planet, which I presume is some cartoon spin-off from Gilligan's Island. Right. But that never got over here. Pandemonium has got pandas in it. Oh, uh, I see. Way. Oh, clever. <laughs> that never got over it. Meatballs and spaghetti. Never got over it. It's got a dog drumming. Clever. Uh, the Popeye and Olive Comedy Hour. Popeye got over it. I like Popeye. Uh, the new Fat Albert show. What was wrong with the old Fat Albert <laughs> show? <laughs> they cancelled it for the new one. I've no idea what that is. Uh, Black Star. No idea what that is. And the CBS Children's Film Festival. Obviously, we did not buy any programming from CBS. Yeah. Because I don't know what any of that filth is. Is there any other adverts for cartoons that we can talk about and mock? Because we never actually saw them. No, there's no more cartoon adverts, which is a shame. You normally have NBC, CBS and ABC all advertising their cartoons at the same time, don't you? Anyway, Michael's choice this week is Big and Hardback. It's Big and Hard. It's 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 Fifty Shades of Grey's <laughs> out, so there you go. Go on, tell us all about your choice. Uh, my choice for this week is the Japanese horror manga Uzumaki by writer-illustrator Junji Ito. Uh, Ito, inspired by horror authors and illustrators such as H.P. Lovecraft and Kazuo Omiza, specialises in the horror genre with his ability to make the mundane terrifying. His most noticeable works include Tomi, Gyo, Ugameki Bukimi, or translated to Fish, Eerie to Wiggle. <laughs> I did say that in full because I like the translation. Fish, Eerie to Wiggle. Yeah, yeah. And Uzumaki, The Spiral. You just made up a bunch of words there, didn't you? I can get away with it too. <laughs> uh, I had heard of Ito through a friend, and tore through most of the unofficial translations available online, his short stories being great reading at 3 o'clock in the morning. And you wonder why you don't sleep. It also helps that Metal Gear creator Hideo Kojima is a big fan and friend of Ito, with Ito's influence being noticeable in Kojima and Guillermo del Toro's PT, the playable teaser for the upcoming Silent Hills video game. Uzumaki was originally released in three volumes in 1998 and 1999, but I have the hardcover omnibus collection, which I bought myself as a Christmas present. You bought your own Christmas presents? I did, yeah. Nobody loves you, did they? Nobody loves you, <laughs> Uh, actually, tomorrow, yeah. as we record this, in three months tomorrow, I'll get my Christmas present. Yes, you will. I've already <laughs> ordered it for you. Yeah, yeah. The first two chapters are titled The Spiral Obsession and Go Thusly. Kiri Gashima is a young schoolgirl living in Kurorozucho, a town that her boyfriend, Shuichi Saito, claims is possessed by spirals. Do they just hit keyboards? <laughs> like mix, mix your pick. Yeah, they just do that. And they go, that's what we have called the town. The ancient tradition. <laughs> 
On her way to the train station to meet him, Kiri finds his father in an alley, smiling as he closely inspects a snail shell. She meets Shuichi at the, tra at the station and tells him about seeing his father, and he responds by saying that he's been acting strangely recently. He proposes that he and Kiri run away and leave the town that he hates so much. The mountains, the whirlwinds, the lighthouse, the spirals. After noticing Kiri's reluctance, Shuichi drops the subject and walks away. The following day, Shuichi's father visits Kiri's father as he works. Her father is a potter, and Shuichi's father says that he really admires his work, and the traditional ceramics is the art of the spiral, and requests for a spiral-patterned bowl to go with the rest of his collection. The following day, Shuichi apologises for his father's visit, and explains to her the strangeness of his obsession, and how he spends all day looking at spirals. His left and right eyes move independently from each other, and he only eats spiral-shaped foods, and only bathes after he stirred a whirlpool in the bath. Shuichi walks home with Kiri, where they find his father shouting at his mother for throwing away his collection. No matter, he says, he can use his body to create spirals, and his eyes begin to spin independently from each other. A few days later, Kiri's father asks her to deliver the spiral bowl he's finished making, and she does so, finding Shuichi's father alone in the house. He apologises, and says he doesn't need the bowl anymore. His body is all he needs to create spirals. He begins to stick out his tongue to an unnatural length, and it curls up. Kiri runs away as a delivery boy arrives with a large cylindrical object. A few days later, Shuichi's father died, and at the funeral, Shuichi explains how, how to Kiri. He and his mother had decided to hospitalise him, but when they got home they saw a large tub in the middle of the room. When they lifted the lid they found him, twisted and contorted in the shape of a spiral. As they talk, somebody shouts and points to the sky. The smoke from the cremation formed a spiral in the sky before swirling down into the, dra into the dragonfly pond and into the centre of the town. For a split second the smoke formed the shape of a face, Shuichi's father's. After the experience, his mother was hospitalised, but had developed a phobia of, sp of spirals, shaming her head and cutting off the skin on her fingers. After calming down for a few days, the doctor tells her that he would like to place her under observation in the psychiatric ward, but during the meeting, Shuichi notices the cochlea on a diagram and panics. If his mother realises that there's a spiral in her ear, he doesn't know what she'll do. That night, the centipede tries to climb inside her ear, but she wakes up and bats it away. She sees it curl up into a spiral and grow the face of her late husband, and hears it call to her, telling her that there are spirals inside her body. The following day, she asks the nurse what's inside the human ear, and the nurse, Shuichi and Kiri, lie to her. However, she heads to the doctor's room to check a diagram anyway. Everybody tries to stop her, and even when she sees that the doctor has taken the diagram down, still tries to find a picture in books. She's taken back to her room where, that night, the IV drip begins to swirl and a face appears telling her that there are spirals in her ears. She takes a pair of scissors and stabs them straight into her ears. In the following days before her death, she was in constant state of vertigo, making her feel as though she was becoming a spiral. Which she did, when the smoke from her cremation spiralled into the sky. Yeah. Oh, well done! Good synopsis, that. Um, I've got to be honest, this creeps the frick out of me. Um, some of this genuinely made me cringe. This it's, is it's so mundane as well. It's yeah, like well, this, that's what's that's what's good about it. It's very Twilight Zoney or eerie Indiana. 
And there's a very Hellmouth vibe to it as well. Because yeah. is it the town yeah. that's wacky that yeah. they're living in? So there is a Buffy Hellmouth vibe to it. And I love that it started in colour and then becomes black and white. Well, like The first couple of pages are colour. Yeah. All manga volumes are like that. Oh, are they? So because this collects three, you can tell when each volume started. Right, because it, cause it goes colour again. Yeah. Right, I see. Uh, reading it, the Japanese way is a little bit confusing at first. You're, like, thoroughly used to that by this point, yeah. right? See, I'm I'm still of the school where they publish manga stuff. They flitched it all around. Yeah. So you read it the Western way instead of the Eastern way. But you, you quickly get used to it, mm. don't you? It's just a case of training your eye to look at the panels a different way. They're usually laid out. Yeah, and it's not like they go for any wacky panel layouts. Yeah. But they're all pretty much grids, so it's pretty straightforward. It's very well paced for these first two stories. Are these the protagonists through the whole thing? Yeah. These two characters? They're all individual stories, but these characters carry on till the end and they're the ones that, that go through it yeah a dad, his dad's obviously cracking up over spirals and it is one of those stories that makes you look at you, just, you looked at your fingerprints while you're reading it yeah, going, yeah, yeah. there's a spiral there and making you realise that how much that pattern is around in everyday life when you don't think of it as being a natural hmm. the bit where his eyes start <laughs> spinning around independently was ugh, why has this not been filmed? I've, it was, I think. Was it? In 2000, I think they made a live action right. movie, but it wasn't released outside of Japan. Alright, oh, okay. And it just gets weirder and weirder. The, the, the amount of detail on the horrific bits, though. Yeah, is, is quite impressive. How he managed to put himself into a spiral in the big bucket, including his tongue, yeah. is kind of gross. But it just gets worse when you get into part two. And then they, they sanction his mum. Yeah. So she ends up in the hospital. His face appearing in the, the clouds is a bit scary. But she just starts going loony tunes. Well, the thing with that, though, is it's worse because she's doing things to herself yeah. that you can do. Yeah, she, that's, that's when it starts becoming really, really icky. Yeah. Because he's just obviously mad, mm. the father. But by the time he gets to the mother and she realises that your her grows in a spiral. Yeah. So she shaves all of her off. And then she looks at the fingerprints, so she starts cutting the fingerprints off her hands yep. with a pair of scissors. And it just gets more and more crazy as she starts. The bit where her son, and I don't know the names, but the bit where her son's in the office with the doctor and he realises, yeah. looking at the, the map of the human body, that there are spirals in her ear. If she learns that, she's just going to crack up. Mm-hmm. And so you're obviously setting up the next to last page where she sticks a pair of scissors down her ears. Yep. Which, oh, there was three or four different times reading this <laughs> where I genuinely went, it, There are some bits later on that are pretty bad as well. Well, that's like in the IV, when she's, she's got the IV drip and yeah. that's got spirals in it. And her husband appears to her in the IV drip. And then she just stabs herself in the ears. and then But then it cuts to on the day of her funeral. So how long did she live after this? As we go into the next stories, yeah. is she still alive? No, she's dead. Right, so she died not long after stabbing herself in the ears, presumably. Then. Mm. Right, okay. Because uh, this was really quite a really good slice of horror. It was a really good horror comic. Yeah. And I like that it's not overtly gory horror mm. 
it's the kind of horror that is proper mature readers' horror, but it's aimed at you yeah, yeah. and your age group. So it's the more down to earth, could happen every day kind of horror. Yeah, it's it's like so it's got a very eerie Indiana if it was written for adults yeah. kind of vibe to it. That all this wacky stuff's going on in the town, and then it it suddenly turns into the ring <laughs> yeah. halfway through and just gets really really creepy. Who who introduced you to this? Uh, I think it might have been Singleton. Right, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, because originally I picked this up when you gave me and I started reading it from the back. <laughs> and you were like, uh, no, Dad, it's, it's the other way. Mm-hmm. So the son becomes the father. <laughs> and the father becomes the son. You know, to read. I think your mum would probably love this. Yeah. Because it is, it is your mum's kind of thing. It being in black and white just so suits it. Mm. But, yes, it's... Uh, and, but what show was this originally for? Uh, it was, it was, what we got for Christmas <laughs> <laughs> yeah because that was good I really did enjoy reading that because it really on. is a nice little slice of horror mm. and it was really unnerving and unsettling and creepy in a very good way one of my favourite Junjito stories is only an unofficial translation but two people go for a walk through a forest mm. and have you heard about the forest where in Japan where everyone goes and kills themselves yes so this, yeah you walk past there and it's just a body hanging in the, the forest road. of the dead yeah and he's just walked past it, but the body turns as though it's watching them. And that's it. The that's the story. the story. Yeah. It's far enough. I like that. That was quite good. Uh, right, that it. we're done then. I oh, think is that so. Your, is that your two comics for this week? They just mm-hmm. happen to be one story. Mm-hmm. Fair enough then. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, Maisie Spider-Man Annual 14 and 15. Booyah! <laughs> Always got to squeeze some more Spider-Man in. And mm-hmm. Doctor Strange is back as well. Is it? And what wackiness are you bringing to the table? Oh, I don't know. I'll have to push the boat out a bit. <laughs> so you don't know until we actually get to next week's episode yep. what Michael's going to cover. But I have every faith that it'll be just as wild and wacky as uh, Uzumaki <laughs> and uh, the thing that you picked last week. I might go for the death stench. Please, please do go for the death stench. Fish eerie to wiggle. I like, I like the idea of doing fish are here to wiggle. Is that not what it was called? No. Fish are here to wiggle. Fish are here to wiggle. Buggy night fish. <laughs> and on that bombshell, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Bye bye. Goodbye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.
Hardy, hardy, rebel scum, home attractor, her, her. Salacious bee crop. Hey, what's going on here? I, I don't remember sounding like this, I. <laughs> the hell was that? Death Vader? Oh, alright. Who are You're part of Rebel Alliance and a traitor! Take her away! Oh, I see my tractor! And my combine harvester! I don't, I don't know, that could be kind of threatening. <laughs> hey, you called her, Sonny Jim. We'll warm you up there. I don't know what accent you're doing, <laughs> but Dave Prowse are from the Northern <laughs> Counties. Who are from the Northern Counties? Hi, Combine Harvester. All Northern Asylum. Hi, Darth Vader's playlist with the Wurzels on it. Who are Vader's a big fan of Lancashire hot sauce. <laughs> Vader loves the Lancashire hot pots. Yep. Who are yeah, you've been shagging in my Death Star. <laughs> Get out of there! <laughs> it's not quite as threatening, is it? It's not. Are <laughs> you this technological terror? Or ain't nothing compared to the power of the Force? <laughs> the Force brings good harvest every year. <laughs>